0: Just a heads up, this episode contains some very painful descriptions of racial violence. On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. And this is American Hysteria. If you want to find us, this is where we are. Where kids are making love, smoking dope, and loading guns. You can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. The Klan also sponsors softball teams. This team is made up of 100% pure white American football players. They don't want us to use black power. I got news for them. i was just like standing there pretty much looking out the window i didn't see what caused it or if there was an impact so you have no idea right, right oh, now there's another one another plane just hit <gasps> right, oh, oh my god oh. another plane has just hit It oh, hit another building oh. flew right into the middle of it <gasps> explosion oh, my god it's right in the middle of the building On Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, I padded out of my room, probably moody and sore-eyed from staying up too late, and I saw my parents huddled near our TV, far closer than I'd ever seen them sit. I pushed between them and I saw it, smoke pouring up and into the air, and all it could remind me of then were the disaster movies so popular in the 90s. Its quality was completely unreal." I didn't understand the depth of what I was seeing when the camera held steady on the reporter and the burning tower, and then what looked like a black fly cut across the background, hitting the second tower right before our eyes. Later that afternoon on the other coast in a suburb of Seattle, I would walk the blacktop with my friends for the first time talking about the possibility of war. Of course, wars were constantly being fought overseas, in distant places that felt hard to even imagine. But that weekend, I took the bus to the city, walking at night through the closed down rides and games that once sat beneath the Space Needle, looking up at it against a metallic blue sky, wondering how much longer it would be there, and what I would do right then if the terrorists did strike again the way the news promised that they would. I wondered what it would feel like to be included in a war, and I wondered if my older friends could be drafted away like the Vietnam War took so many. This fear, this apprehension, is what terrorism is designed to do. In my lifetime, the focus has remained tight on this kind of terrorism that we call Islamic extremism. But in this two-part episode, we'll instead explore domestic terrorism, terrorism directed at Americans by Americans, which has been responsible for far more death and destruction throughout the course of our history. We're going to take a close look at white terrorism against minorities and the sometimes violent resistance that fought against white supremacy. We'll take a look at the slave revolts and abolitionists that fought against the institution of slavery, and we'll also see how the Ku Klux Klan began and how they returned rebranded and more family-friendly in the 1920s, while still committing unbearable atrocities to terrorize Black communities. We'll make it to the 1960s and 70s, as the Black Panthers were labeled the most dangerous organization in America. And we'll learn, too, about their manic white allies, the Weather Underground, a group of of affluent college students who bombed state and federal buildings to protest both the war in Vietnam, as well as the treatment of black Americans. My hope for this two-part series is to shine a light on both the actions of the far left and the far right, and see how the concept of terror has influenced American history right up to the present day as the alt-right and Antifa ragefully battle in our streets. Today, I'm going to be going by a basic definition of terrorism, one I've attempted to create from the 60-some definitions provided by various states, nations, and the UN. Terrorism is the purposeful use of violence or threats of violence to intimidate populations and affect some kind of political change. Today we'll see that there's nothing very novel about the street fights we see today, and you might find that you agree with the philosophies of one side more so than the other, but feel uneasy about the tactics they use. Or maybe you'll begin to understand the riots, the violence, the rage, and you might sympathize with some of those who have been labeled as terrorists. Perhaps we can see together a long legacy of these two sides battling constantly, one to preserve an original plan for this colonial America, and the other to tear it all down in order, yet again, to build a new kind of nation. Technically speaking, America began as a terrorist state as the colonists saw no other way to claim the land as rightfully theirs than to use violence, rape, and advanced weapons to intimidate indigenous people into submission. They were met with retaliatory violence from tribes protecting their land, and attacks on white settlements did occur, with a terrorist goal in mind, that is, to scare the settlers away from the land that they had inhabited for thousands of years. But the numbers show which group carried out a more successful campaign of murder intimidation and illness, decreasing the number of indigenous people by 90 percent. In its beginnings, America also embarked on a kind of international terrorism, kidnapping African people to build without mercy an outrageous and continuous dream. For centuries, these white slave owners used fear to assert control. But that didn't mean that there weren't people ready to meet them on their level. Hundreds of slave revolts took place over the course of America's early history. The largest of these was called the Stono Rebellion of 1739, in which 20 enslaved people raided a local store called Hutchinson's, killed the white owners, and displayed their severed heads publicly in front of the building. After a battle lasting a week, most of the rebels were killed by pro-slavery forces. A couple years later, in a fevered dream ignited by actual local fires in the town of Fort George, New York, white supremacists believed that enslaved people and their abolitionist allies were forming a sweeping plan to kill white men, kidnap their women, and burn their city to the ground. Referred to as the New York City Conspiracy of 1741, these white townspeople were apparently hearing whispers of a secret black society. After the frantic and relatively pointless investigation unfolded, 30 black men and four white people were executed, likely for a conspiracy that never existed. It seemed that white people were creating a heightened threat Something they invented to fight against so that they could continue to reason away their brutal business as usual. As we talked about in our episode called Monsters, enslaved black man Nat Turner's slave revolt that killed 60 white people had a clear goal. He stated that he wanted to spread, quote, terror and alarm among whites with the goal of waking them up to the horrifying realities of slavery, hoping to incite some kind of political change. In 1859, a white man was inspired by Nat Turner and other slave revolts throughout the preceding 200 years. In an event considered to be one of the catalysts of the Civil War, a white abolitionist named John Brown began the plans for what opinion writer Tony Horwitz of the New York Times recently named the 9-11 of its era. Owen Brown, John's father, had moved the family to Hudson, Ohio, where he then created a safe house as part of the Underground Railroad. Lacking a town high school, John was educated by local abolitionists, creating a kind of fire in his belly that would inform the rest of his life. As an adult, John would get the chance to hear black activist Sojourner Truth speak, and even got to have a little late-night conversation in 1847 with Frederick Douglass, who, along with John Brown, was also beginning to question whether a peaceful abolition was actually possible. Just three years later, they would be proven right in their concerns when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, causing the federal government to team up with slave owners, creating actual slave catchers, which represented the very early stages of what would become known as the police. In the face of these new authorities, John Brown knew it was time to fight fire with fire, and he created the League of Gileadites, an anti-slavery militia group that vowed to carry guns and actively fight any slave catchers that came into their community. In 1856, the fight turned deadly as the League of Gileadites took revenge for what was known as the Sacking of Lawrence, an attack on a Kansas town that was founded by abolitionists. In response, the League waited until nightfall and then entered several homes, killing five pro-slavery activists with broadswords. The three months that followed the raid became known as Bleeding Kansas, a battle between abolitionists and government-sanctioned pro-slavery forces with a total of 29 deaths. During the standoff, one pro-slavery writer announced that their forces, quote, are determined to repel this northern invasion and make Kansas a slave state. Though our rivers should be covered with the blood of their victims and the carcasses of the abolitionists should be so numerous in the territory as to breed disease and sickness, we will not be deterred from our purpose. John Brown would commit one more act of violence before he was hanged for his actions, attempting to create a larger-scale slave revolt. The group kidnapped George Washington's great grandnephew and actually freed their family's slaves. But as a train approached the group, he called out for it to halt, and when it didn't, he began shooting at it. Whether or not on purpose, he hit and killed baggage master Hayward Shepard, the first death of the raid. Hayward was a free black man. In the shootout that followed between abolitionists and their pro-slavery rivals, Brown and his men killed four of their people while ten of their own were killed. Both Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass had been invited to be a part of the action, but Harriet said she was too ill and Frederick simply thought the plan wouldn't work. John Brown had believed that 200 to 500 slaves would join him in the raid, but only 22 showed up that day, many believing that these actions would not help them, but would actually bring down more violence and anger from their white slave masters. John was hanged in front of 2,000 U.S. soldiers, including future Confederate General Stonewall Jackson and poet Walt Whitman, one of several writers who described a recent intense meteor shower as a prophetic sign of the war to come. They venerated John Brown as a hero, with Henry David Thoreau describing his last six weeks on Earth as, quote, "...meteor-like, flashing through the darkness in which we live. I know nothing so miraculous in our history." One other famous man would attend this event, borrowing a militia uniform to gain access, the man who would go on to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln right after he announced his plan to allow black men to vote. It was an act of terrorism meant to assert the continued power of the Confederacy and the pro-slavery movement, an action that John Wilkes Booth hoped would create enough chaos so that him and his men could overthrow the U.S. government. Only eight months after this assassination, the most famous white supremacist group of all time would begin to form. Old oh, John Brown's body lies moaning in the grave. I weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured out to save. And though he lost his life in his struggle to free the slaves, his truth is mine. In what was called the Ironclad Oath, a group now known as the Ku Klux Klan swore to always carry arms to fight against the Union, as the League of Gileadites before them had sworn to fight the Confederate power. Those at the top of the hierarchy of this new organization, this new secret society, referred to those ranking below them as my terrors. The KKK was officially founded on Christmas Eve, 1856, by six former Confederate soldiers. After the Civil War, states still maintained much of their power over the lives of free black people, creating black codes that put restrictions on black labor, enforcing laws that they be paid lower wages and signed contracts that put them under the power of white masters again. If they refused, they could be arrested and forced to do hard labor, free. The KKK used many tactics in their attempts to scare former slaves back onto their plantations. They walked like menacing ghouls down country roads, shooting rifles into the air, chasing down any black person they saw outside their cabin, and then often torturing them in the dust. They would barge into towns, galloping on their robed horses, claiming to be the ghosts of Confederate soldiers. They'd kick in the doors of black families and then prance around standing on stilts and wearing tall hats, pretending to tear off their own arms, which were actual skeleton arms hidden in their shirt sleeves. Others carried around dummy heads in their hands, their own heads pushed down into their robes as if it were a Halloween costume. This group was and is a brutal terrorist organization but they were also kind of an embarrassing group of losers who lived in a fantasy world. Like the kind of fantasy world where they referred to their leader as a Grand Wizard and their organization as the Invisible Empire of the South. They also added KL to the beginning of a lot of words as a kind of obvious code. For example, when referring to a future meeting of the mines that was to take place at a local bar, a clan member would invite his terrors to a conversation at the Clavern. He might say something like: "No one will be allowed to pass the Clorogo into the Clavern until the clonclave is duly opened." Led by a president known as the Exalted Cyclops, the list of positions read like a baby babbling. You had the cloakard, the Clud, Clad, Clexter, Clargo, and then, of course, the Nighthawk. See, the KKK wanted to project this image of a kind of dark secret society, one that was full of fantastical figures ready to fight for an ancient cause. The Klan had many goals, some outright violence, and others a kind of quieter subversion. They became active in the fight to remove gun ownership from Black people, to reduce their access to education, to sabotage their voting rights, and to continue to suppress any positive economic gains. They also went after former union leaders and abolitionist politicians, assassinating several white members of the government. Soon after the violence began to touch elected officials, President Ulysses S. Grant passed the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which would see thousands of members arrested across the country. However, just two years later, Grant would formally pardon all of the jailed members of the Klan, deciding to no longer pursue the issue. But this blow would see the Klan fade from the public eye. That is, until a 1915 blockbuster smash hit seeped through the country, single-handedly changing America's view on the Klan and allowing them to reign again. More after this. plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now, back to the show. The 1915 film Birth of a Nation became a key piece of what would rebrand and then revive the Klan during the 1920s. The plot shows the plight of Southern whites during Reconstruction and paints Black people as lazy, immoral, sexually dangerous, and unworthy of freedom. The Confederates are the victims of this story, as the Union and the Black race begin taking over the country, destroying what is seen as the noble plantation life. Eventually, our heroes gallop in. That's right, the Ku Klux Klan, saving especially the white women from the white actors in full black face. Woefully, the film was a well-made box office smash and was in fact likely the first film ever shown in the White House. Even today, apparently for its amazing production, it boasts a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. After seeing Birth of a Nation in theaters, a man named William Simmons would attempt to revive the Klan right then and there, but at first it didn't work. In fact, Simmons actually had to hire a group of black men to dress up as the KKK and walk in a veterans parade because he didn't have any members of his own. But as the film normalized the idea of a heroic Klan, Simmons hired an actual PR team, and their numbers would soon rise to 4 million. Though lynching and other forms of abuse had continued throughout mostly the Deep South, this film awakened a serious pop-cultural resentment. Black victims were again burned, shot, stabbed, castrated, and beheaded, dragged through town or placed in public places to incite fear among the Black community. Soon after Birth of a Nation, thousands of black men and women would participate in what is now called the Great Migration, heading away from the South to escape persecution and to find work in urban areas in the relatively safer North. This only emboldened a perceived need for protection, for protection of both white workers and white women. Enter, of course, the Ku Klux Klan. And do you think children is brought up to mix the black and white together? Did you know your horse won't mix with your cow? Your dog won't mix with your home, and you tell me white people has got a mind and can't say no care than that. If you can take a moment to imagine, this brand new KKK was a fun KKK. They essentially, by today's terms, officially rebranded. They had photo shoots, they sponsored baseball teams and county fairs, and were actually seen riding together on a Ferris wheel in their full hooded costumes, a deeply bizarre and jarring image you can find on our social media. They sponsored fraternities and hosted beauty pageants, one of which was called Miss 100% America. They painted themselves as down-home dudes, Fun guys looking out for the common white man and the vulnerable white woman, who more and more felt their power and privilege suddenly threatened by the existence of relatively successful black Americans. In 1921, outside Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a place known as Black Wall Street, a separate community of black doctors, lawyers, and business owners. It was a bustling town with lawyers' offices, auto shops, a movie theater, pool halls, and restaurants. The existence of this black affluence angered much of the state, and the Klan, as well as other plain white Americans, marched into town as the sun set, unsurprisingly due to a fabricated story of a black teenager's sexual assault on a white woman. They wreaked an unimaginable amount of havoc on the community, an act of terrorism meant to be a message, a warning, for what black people were allowed to have. And apparently backed by the government, many white men were deputized and armed by the local police. White civilians had actually flown in small planes above the burning town, shooting rifles and throwing containers of gasoline out their windows. Up to 300 Black people were killed, with more than 800 injured and with a staggering 6,000 arrested. 35 blocks were burned to the ground. That's 1,256 homes, 191 businesses, and 10,000 people left without homes. For months, survivors lived in Red Cross tents provided by the government as they nearly froze to death in the harsh winter. Nonetheless, the media dubbed the event a Negro uprising. The KKK would fall again in 1925 when reports surfaced of a brutal sexual assault committed by the Grand Wizard and Indiana politician D.C. Stevenson. This was a man who had once said, quote, we are going to clucks indiana as she has never been kluxed before stevenson had called up a white state education worker named madge Oberholzer after meeting her at a conference madge tentatively accepted she knew he was a very powerful man in the government But upon arriving at his columned mansion, she saw that Stevenson was extremely drunk and he began demanding that she marry him and move to Chicago, which she promptly refused. This reaction incensed him and he would go on to brutally rape Madge, actually biting away chunks of her flesh all over her body she would attempt to kill herself in order to spare the shame for her mother, she said. Though her suicide attempt would be unsuccessful, the mercury she ingested made her terribly sick and just after the trial, she would die of what was likely a combination of poisoning and infection from her wounds. However, her trial would single-handedly bring down the KKK when Stevenson was convicted of second-degree rape and murder and then sentenced to life the indignant Stevenson would go on to release the names of prominent white Americans who had ties to the KKK. Many members all over the country were charged with conspiracy, and the group again faded into obscurity. The Klan would be revived yet again as integration began to allow black people into previously all-white spaces. Again, scores of black homes and churches were firebombed, Lynchings rose, and people like 14-year-old Emmett Till were still being violently killed indiscriminately. On September 15, 1963, more than 15 sticks of dynamite were planted in the 16th Street Church of Birmingham, Alabama. Four KKK members used a timing mechanism that detonated the bombs just after 10 a.m., killing four black girls who were putting their robes on to sing in the choir. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. Twenty-two others, including many children, were severely injured in the blast. The Klansmen were identified, but just before they could be prosecuted, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover quietly ended the investigation. As districts attempted to integrate black students into previously all-white schools, the uproar was enormous, with whites opposed to desegregation marching down the streets carrying guns, intimidating black kids away from registering and entering schools. One mob actually tied a sculpture of a black child to the top of a flagpole with a sign that read, quote, This Negro tried to enter a white school this would be a terrible way to die. And then they set it on fire. After the violence against the Little Rock Nine in 1957, the governor blamed both sides, white supremacists as well as the NAACP, who he called extremists. President Dwight D. Eisenhower himself also showed indifference about the terror being created for these black kids seeking education, also calling attention to extremists on both sides. Soon, America was awash in the cultural changes of the late 1960s and early 70s, and two major far-left groups emerged as terrorist threats, seemingly reaching for the same goals, but not always seeing eye to eye. These revolutionaries were called the Black Panther Party and the Weather Underground, two groups labeled by the government and the media alike as homegrown militant hippie terrorists. Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party for self-defense in Oakland, California in 1966 after the murder of a young unarmed black man named Matthew Johnson by white police and the black riots that followed after. They saw this anger as a force that could be turned into political power, and they believed the only way to combat the institutional racism of the civil rights era police forces was to arm themselves with rifles and carry them openly through the streets. They watched over police interactions with black folks as an intimidating force, often chanting things like, quote, the revolution has come, time to pick up the gun, off the pigs. Due to these armed revolutionaries, and in stark contrast to today, a law was proposed to actually ban the open carrying of guns. The Black Panthers protested this by showing up at the state capitol with loaded shotguns and rifles. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called the Panthers, quote, "...the greatest threat to the internal security of the country." My name is is Kalita Smith. I'm eight and a half years old. I live in Oakland, California. I go to school at the Oakland Community Learning Center. My school was started by the Black Panther Party. But this Black Panther Party for self-defense wasn't just attempting to intimidate white supremacy. They were also instituting revolutionary programs on the basis of their 10-point plan, which they summarized as, quote, land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. They created the Free Breakfast for Children program after learning that kids who ate breakfast performed better in schools. They fed 20,000 kids in just one school year in order to, quote, shed light on the government's failure to address child poverty and hunger. However, the government instead saw this as a way for Panthers to spread their political propaganda. COINTELPRO was the FBI's collection of tactics to bring down what they considered radical political groups. Out of 290 of COINTELPRO's actions, it's important to note that 245 of them targeted specifically the Black Panther Party. When the volunteerism spread to Chicago, police went as far as breaking into the church where the free breakfast was set to begin the next day, mashing up and actually urinating on all of the children's food. The Chicago Panthers' young chairman, 20-year-old Fred Hampton, attempted to merge their group with a Southside Street gang with thousands of members, including other groups of color. This would have effectively doubled the membership of the Black Panther Party. And in order to prevent this, the FBI orchestrated a raid on the apartment where Fred Hampton was living. After an FBI informant drugged him with a dinner that was laced with barbiturates, agents stormed in and killed Fred Hampton as he slept in his bed beside his pregnant wife. Almost a hundred shots were fired by police, while only one was shot by the Panthers themselves, which a later investigation proved to be accidental. The next day, authorities held a press conference claiming that they had been attacked by the quote, violent and extremely vicious Panthers and had acted in self-defense. They were praised for their quote, remarkable restraint, bravery, and professional discipline in not killing all the Panthers present. The seven surviving members were indicted on charges of attempted murder and armed violence. It was this series of actions that sparked a violent response from another radical group, one known as the Weather Underground, made up of almost all white middle and upper class college students who began bombing cop cars. They were a splinter group of the well-organized movement Students for a Democratic Society. But as the media began publishing graphic photos and videos of the violence in Vietnam, some of the members of the SDS stopped believing in peace. Hello. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the Weatherman Underground. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. Freaks are revolutionaries, and revolutionaries are freaks. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. They said that they wanted to, quote, bring the war home, to force regular Americans to first witness the carnage and then to mobilize against it. They also believed that the continued police violence and segregation of people of color begged for immediate and more dramatic action, and they dedicated themselves to the fight for civil rights. They idolized the Black Panthers and spoke openly about the concept that would later develop into what we call white privilege. Their task was simple overthrow the U.S. government through armed resistance and through terrorist acts, declaring that, quote, white youth must choose sides now. They must either fight on the side of the oppressed or be on the side of the oppressor. They encouraged the risking of this white privilege through any means necessary to bring about equality and end the reign of terror against people of color overseas and at home. Quote, we've known that our job is to lead white kids into armed revolution. Tens of thousands have learned that protests and marches don't do it. Revolutionary violence is the only way. But these noble aims didn't always lead to an alliance with the Black Panthers themselves. In a spree of chaos known as the Days of Rage, the weather underground smashed windows of businesses, police cars, and homes, some of which belonged to lower-middle-class families. For multiple days, the weathermen, as they were sometimes called, battled with police who far outnumbered them while wearing motorcycle and football helmets, injuring more than 20 cops who shot their guns at the rioters and drove squad cars into the mobs. When the Panther 21 were arrested for conspiracy to bomb several police stations and landmarks for which they were eventually acquitted, by the way, the Weather Underground threw Molotov cocktails at the home of the presiding Supreme Court judge. Black Panther Fred Hampton, who was still alive at the time, called these actions, quote,
1: It's anarchistic,
0: opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh, custaristic, and that's the bad part about it. It's custaristic, in that it's leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call it revolution, and it's nothing but child's play, it's folly. We think these people may be sincere, but they're misguided, they're muddleheads, and they're scatterbrains. It was clear that Fred Hampton and many other Panthers did not like the political climate that the Weathermen were fostering, and he worried that their violence would not affect their white affluent peers, but instead would continue to anger police, who would then take it out on poor black communities. Despite the Panthers' reluctance to align with the weathermen, it was the death of Fred Hampton that would amp the group up even more as they began to learn haphazardly how to create homemade explosives. The first attempt left three Weather Underground members dead when Terry Robbins, who was not experienced in homemade bombs, accidentally blew up the townhouse they were living in. They had planned to detonate this bomb at a dance being held for local police officers and their dates. After this sudden tragedy, the Weather Underground rethought their violent targeting of police and in addition decided that they didn't want to hurt civilians with their bombs. They began sending ahead warnings 20 minutes before the blasts in order to clear out any people that may be in the buildings. In total, the group would claim responsibility for 25 bombings, including the U.S. State Department, a military center in Oakland, the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, the California Attorney General's office, and a New York City police station. They broke famous Harvard professor-turned-acid-king Timothy Leary out of prison. They held drug-fueled orgies in living rooms and even in their vans, participating in what they called smash monogamy, believing that possessiveness ran counter to a community-based revolution. Forced sexual encounters were created between all of the members in order to break couples up. Wanted posters made by the FBI featuring prominent members of the group were displayed in every post office in the country. But all of this intensity, all of this willingness to commit violence, this enormous wild revolution would prove to be a symptom of youth and The Weather Underground would completely dismantle by the 1980s, with all of the members either landing in prison or splintering off into less radical political organizations. In the 2003 documentary called The Weather Underground, former member Brian Flanagan reflects on his time in the group, saying, quote, "'When you feel you have right on your side, "'you can do some pretty horrific things.'" Join us again next week for our second part of this two-part series where we look at the modern era of domestic terrorism. Our show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios with research assisted by Riley Smith and recorded on location at Densmore Studios in Seattle. Another thank you this week to Miranda Zickler for all of her insightful help from research to writing to editing. I definitely couldn't have done this without you. If you follow us on social media, you'll be able to see some of the pictures and videos that we mentioned throughout our episodes. The links are in the show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope to see you all next week for the second part of this two-part series where I try to break down domestic terrorism in our modern times. From the Oklahoma bombing to 9-11 to the battles we see today between Antifa and the alt-right that seem to only be heating up as we head toward the 2020 election. Have a great week and take care of yourself.